Morning, Bethel. Okay, we're going to read our scripture reading for this morning. It's found in Zephaniah chapter 3, probably not a book that you uh, flip to every day. So if you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. So you can turn to page 790, and uh, you can find the text there. Zephaniah chapter 3. Verses 11 to 20, and uh, it's our custom in honor of God's Word to stand as we read it, and usually I read it and you follow along, but this morning, let's all participate. Let's read God's Word together and engage with what's said here. This text is a really powerful parallel to the passage we're going to study in Isaiah 61 this morning, and I'll leave it to you this afternoon or later to connect some of the dots and see some of those parallels, but at least um, this will get us thinking about a lot of important themes that we're going to consider this morning. So Zephaniah 3, beginning in verse 11, and let's read it together. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. So we are continuing in our study through the book of Isaiah. And we're in chapter 61. So if you're not there already, you might want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. And if you're using that Pew Bible, uh, you can find it on page 620. 
So while you're turning there, I want you to think with me um, about this question, the answer to this question. If you could see God face to face today, what expression would be on his face when he looks at you? What would you expect to see? Now, some of you know what you should say, but if you're honest, you don't believe that answer very often. I know I struggle to believe it. And some of you might not know what to expect. You're not sure. I don't, I don't know what he would look like. And I don't mean just features. I'm saying the expression on his face, approval, disapproval, anger, smile, Well, your view of the heart of God, who he is, what he's like, and in relation to you, it matters immensely. It's of eternal significance. And Isaiah 61 is in the Bible to help us know and be sure of the heart of God. To be sure of the heart of God, like for you, for me, very personal. So if you were here last week, if you weren't, it's okay. Isaiah 60, there's all these amazing promises of how God is going to make all things new. And he's already begun that work through Jesus. It's gotten started. It's going to continue to grow as lives are transformed. And then one day Jesus comes back and all things are made new. He sets everything to rights. And so at the end of chapter 60... Verse 21, it says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And then at the end, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Also, we saw that in chapter 60, there are these words that are picked up in Revelation 21, which is all about when God makes all things new. And here's what it says in Revelation 21, again, picking up on Isaiah 60. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the, new, is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There's no more threats, nothing to fear anymore. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. All things made new. So the question is begged at the end of chapter 60, how's all that going to happen? And that's what chapter 61 answers. So let's look at 61.1. Verses 1 to 3 here first. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And we've got to figure out who's talking here. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So, who's the me? It's no surprise. It's the Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful Trinitarian passage. Do you see it? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Son of God. Because the Lord, God the Father, has anointed me God the Son, by the Spirit, to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. We're talking about the heart of God. What's he like? Isn't this the heart of God, to bind up the brokenhearted? Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So this is about Jesus the Messiah. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what that's a reference to? Did you ever hear of the year of Jubilee? Okay, well, what's that all about? Well, flip back to Leviticus 25. This is all one story. So oftentimes there are allusions to things that come before. And so in Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8, it's on page 103 if you're using the Pew Bible. It says, you shall count seven weeks of seven years, seven times seven years. For those of you that are a little slow, that's 49. Um, the year of Jubilee is the 50th year. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the, group, the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So if someone, um, you know, you didn't have credit, you didn't have bankruptcy back then, so if you got in trouble financially, you would have to sell your land, give it to someone, and you would have to be in debt to them, and you would lose your property, you'd lose your possessions. But God had it built in that there was a day where all debts were forgiven, all debts were released. So imagine what this would be like if you were the one enslaved, and this day hit in your lifetime. You'd think you'd won the lottery, right? So this is like a picture of the salvation of God that comes through Jesus. All debts forgiven. Like Jubilee is kind of a happy day, right? It's good news. So to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that year of Jubilee, verse 2. Then it says, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn. I'm sorry, we're back in Isaiah 61, so maybe you should keep your finger in there. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, we just went back to Leviticus, but again, this is one story. Guess who quoted these words when he showed up on the scene? Jesus did in Luke 4. So can you flip to Luke 4, go the other direction, keep your finger in Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4. Jesus quoted this, and he quoted it so central to the gospel of Luke, the way it's structured. The point is that this is why Jesus came. If you want to know who Jesus is and why he came, this is a central summary of his mission. And 
There are a few slight differences. We're not going to take time on them. He brings in a phrase actually from Isaiah 58. He leaves out another phrase. But the thing that I want you to look out for is where does he stop the quote? Okay, so look at Luke 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, end quote. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <gasps> so where did he stop? What's the very next phrase? Go ahead, louder. Yeah, the day of vengeance. He stopped before the day of vengeance of our God. Do you think that was accidental? Just, okay, that's enough. That covers it. Do you think maybe it was intentional that he stopped where he stopped? How would the Jews, if you know, if you've read the Gospels, if you kind of know the story, how do you think the Jews would have heard or interpreted the day of vengeance of our God? They would have thought that that vengeance, yeah, get them. It's, it's our enemies out there. So you come and get them. That's why they expected this political leader to set them free from the Roman oppression. That wasn't Jesus' plan. So he stops before that phrase. We all know John 3.16, but John 3.17 is just as important. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, now that Jesus has come, God has gotten better control of his emotions? You know, he used to have this hair-trigger temper in the Old Testament. Now he's a little bit more laid back. No! I love this quote by John Stott, and he's got a classic book called The Cross of Christ. Listen to this. God's holiness exposes sin, his wrath, vengeance, like it says in that verse, opposes it. So sin cannot approach God, and God cannot tolerate sin. And by the way, you don't want a God who's okay with evil. That's a really scary world. So he is absolutely opposed to evil. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, un uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Stott continues, God does not love us. Listen, God does not love us because Christ died for us, as if, as if Christ kind of pacified his character. He's really angry. And then Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. Come on, let, 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 me, let me take care of it. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it's God's wrath which needs to be propitiated, absorbed, dealt with, taken away, it's God's love which did the propitiating. 
It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated because, again, he can't just sweep sin under the rug and injustice and all this ugliness. He's just. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins, to absorb the the punishment, to deal with it in himself. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. End quote. That's the heart of God. So Jesus' primary purpose in his first coming was not to immediately bring judgment on God's enemies, because guess what? We'd all be toast. His primary purpose was to absorb the judgment that we deserve, we, his enemies, so that we could be reconciled to God. That's the heart of God. God showed up in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And what happened at his first coming? The wrath doesn't fall on us, we who deserve it. But instead, because of his mighty, heroic, loving heart, the wrath of God fell on his son, on himself. You know why? So that Jesus could do all of the job description in Isaiah 61. Look at the heart of God in this passage. This is so sweet. I mean, one of the most important things you can ever ask of a passage as you're reading the Bible on your own is, what does this passage say about God? What what do I learn about God in this passage? Like, maybe you need to Put that on a sticky note and just have it as a bookmark for wherever you're reading. What does this have to say about God? Well, let's ask that here. I mean, where are you going to learn about who God is, what he's like? Are you going to try to read the tea leaves of your circumstances? No. You'll be, like, all over the place. Are you going to trust your own crazy mind? I mean, we are a bunch of naturally superstitious, like religious, formula-loving, crack-the-code, theological wackos on our own. I mean, we can look at other countries and say, ooh, they're cutting themselves to try to appease the deity and, you know, like get on the God's good side and make these sacrifices and whatever. You know what? We start to suffer, and we look around like, what what, what do I need to do to fix this? What dance do I need to do to get God's attention and get him on my good side? We do the same thing. It's the propitiation dance. I got to make sure God's happy with me. You know, I'm going to dance around and do whatever I need to do to get on his good side. No. He propitiated his own wrath. We need to know the heart of God. We need to believe the heart of God. So where are you going to learn? It's only going to come by seeing his revelation to us, not stuff we drum up. I don't trust my own opinion as far as I can throw it. That, That doesn't really work. Anyway. Okay, you get the idea. So here it is. Yahweh anoints his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit. Here's the job description. To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the jubilee year of Yahweh's favor, all debts forgiven, to comfort all who mourn, to grant and give those who mourn reason to dust off the ashes and celebrate... To anoint those who mourn with the oil of gladness, to clothe those who mourn with strength and praise, and all that they might be planted. God wants to plant us in fertile soil 
so that we can grow strong and stable with height, oaks of righteousness, height and strength and flexibility, fruitfulness, so that he is glorified for his mighty heart. Okay, so just let that wash over you. It is such good news. Like, what is God like? Here you go. Here is his heart. Here is the character of God revealed for us weak, stubborn, foolish, rebellious people. For me, for you. This is a magnanimous God. He has got a hero heart. So I was meditating on this week. I'm like, this is so awesome. How do you even find words to describe this? And heroic or hero came to mind, but that word has been so cheapened in our culture. I mean, it's a great word. I need to kind of reclaim it back for who it really belongs to. Listen to a couple of definitions here. A person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. A person who, in the face of danger, combats adversity through impressive feats of ingenuity, bravery, or strength, often sacrificing his or her own personal concerns for some greater good. We're all looking for one. We'll look no further. All other so-called heroes can just step aside as the real hero takes center stage here in Isaiah 61. So now, go back to what's on God's face when he looks at you. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe yet, you're, you're wrestling with that, you're asking questions, you're exploring, if you're not yet trusting God and Jesus as your Savior, do you see who it is that's got you here this morning and has this passage for you this morning? Like, he wants you to know who he is. He wants you to see the love, the compassion, and the invitation on his face to trust him. I mean, we can't lie about it. There is a day of vengeance coming. We can't soft pedal it. There is a day when Jesus will come back and set everything to rights. And if you've rejected him, it's not going to be a smile at that point. But until then, he is patient with us, wanting us to come to repentance, to come to him. And that's what he's extending to you this morning. And you can come to him. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, what's on the Father's face? Your Father's face. I need to do this. I think a lot of you need to do this. We need to ruthlessly fight back the false ideas that we project onto the character, onto the face of God. Do you feel safe around God? Like, can you be quiet and alone with God? Or do you, maybe you don't even know why, but you always kind of have to keep some background music up so you don't have to face yourself and him. Do you fear that? Why do you fear that? Do you feel like he's a hard man? Like maybe like a taskmaster? Like he's just waiting for you to get out of line? If so, do you think any of that fosters intimacy with him? Do you have an intimate relationship with the God who made you and came for you to save you? Does the Bible say that we should expect and seek an intimate relationship like that with him? 
Yes. So what if, what if, what if this morning God's even like wanting to make you sure of him so that we really believe that he came to bring good news to bad people? That we really believe that he's tender-hearted toward the brokenhearted. That, that this is his disposition toward people bound in sin and fear and addiction. Or what about people who are burdened down by debts of all sorts, whether they be financial mistakes or relational debts? What about sad, depressed people? What's on God's face toward them? Get over it already. What's wrong with you? I've got bigger fish to fry in this universe. I got to go work on something over there in the, you know, some nebula out somewhere. No. What about people who feel like throwing in the towel? This is exactly on Jesus' job description. You ever feel like you can barely go on? I mean, sometimes I was thinking about this a couple times in the last few weeks. It's amazing I'm still a Christian. Have you ever, like, realized this? Jesus has saved me innumerable times, like rescued me from my stupid self, from my cold heart, from my proneness to wander. He, I mean, in some ways, he saves me daily. Anybody with me? So... This, this is what the gospel does. This is what this Jesus who lays out his job description, hey, this is what I'm all about. This is, this is what keeps us and saves us and rescues us and keeps us on the path. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, present tense. The gospel is not just the beginning. We need it every day. We need Jesus every day. And by which, the gospel, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word preached to you. So the gospel keeps saving me. I mean, oh, how I need to keep coming back again and again and again to Jesus. Like, I will just start thinking about how I screwed up there, I failed there, I'm not enough here, inadequate there, whatever, and I spiral down into a hole. And like, okay, why are you downcast, though, my soul? Like, hello? Jesus is in the equation here. So he can rescue and sustain and revive us. But do you see how important it is to trust the heart of God? If you don't trust the heart of God, why would you come to him when you're feeling fragile or weak or needy? You're going to run somewhere else. You're going to self-medicate. You'll try to just suck it up and be stoic and prove you're tough enough. Or you might even feel like you need to prove yourself to him, and you'll be really religious, hoping to garner his favor. We need to just be done with that, church. We need to believe that this is God's heart. This is his self-chosen job description. No one was holding a gun to God's head. He chose this. He chose you because of his happy hero heart. Okay, so little quote. Um, this was found by a friend of mine. Um, he's in Indiana. And uh, some little-known English pastor that lived in the 17th and 18th centuries, 
He preached a sermon called The Temper of Jesus. And this guy, I had never heard of him before. Um, Drew Hunter is the guy that pointed this out. And he shares some sweet, sweet meditations on what Jesus is like. And he's, he's commenting on Luke 24, 47. So Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So meditation on that. Okay, you're thinking, how in the world did we get from here to there? Okay, hold on a second. It has everything to do with the attitude, the disposition, the heart, the temper of Jesus. So listen to this. It is very affecting, affects your heart, that the first offers of grace should be made to those who least deserved it. They of all people had most deserved the contrary, that they who had abused Christ to a degree beyond the most pitiful description, should lie uppermost in his care, beginning from Jerusalem. You know the place where they tacked me on a cross? I want you to start there. (laughs) So that they who had abused Christ to a degree beyond the most pitiful description should lie uppermost in his care and stand foremost in his pity and find so much mercy from one to whom they showed none at all one would rather have expected the apostles, should have received another kind of charge, and that Christ should have said, let repentance and remission of sins be preached, but carry it not to Jerusalem, that wicked city. Let not the gospel enter those gates through which they led me, its author to crucifixion. But God's thoughts are not as ours. Our way is to make the chief of offenders examples of justice, to avenge ourselves upon those who have done us personal injury or wrong. But Christ chooses out these to make examples of mercy and commands the first offer of eternal life to be made to them and all the world are to wait. And then he acts like he's speaking with, you know, first person as Jesus here. Tell them, you have seen the prints of the nails upon my hands and feet and the wounds of the spear in my side and that those marks are so far from giving me vindictive thoughts if they will but repent, that every wound they have given me speaks in their behalf, pleads with the Father for forgiveness of their sins. And then he says this, if you meet that poor wretch that thrusts the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent, And look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn. I will cherish him in that very heart he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed and ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. Does that just like melt you? How sweet is that? That is our hero's heart. That's what God is like. And this job description in verses 1 to 3 is not just some once and done thing. We've got to see this, the connection between 1 to 3 and 4 to 9 to follow. We are actually continually changed and transformed by the gracious, mighty, loving heart of Jesus. Okay, so look at point number 2, transformation by covenant, verses 4 to 9. They shall build up the ancient ruins. Who are they? 
We'll look back at verse 3. They, actually literally it could be they shall be called oaks of righteousness. It's the same they. So those who are changed by Jesus, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So do you see that connection? Verses 1 to 3 and verse 4. Verses 1 to 3 are Jesus' to-do list every day. That work of Jesus is what makes us new people, what strengthens us to grow and change and get strong to do this work of rebuilding. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. When we become his people, we're actually intended to mediate the presence of God to this world. We're like priests. We can intercede for people. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. See last week's message for that one. Um, We won't unpack it here. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. And instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their portion, in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Do you see the glorious reversal through Christ that comes here? So the spiritually bankrupt become rich. The weak become strong. Now, why can we be confident that all this is going to happen? Verse 8. Because I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrong, I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Just (coughs) focus on that last phrase. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. You see the connection between the end of verse 7 and the end of verse 8? It's the everlasting covenant that leads to everlasting joy. Once again, all of this is predicated on the work of God. It's not something we can do in our own steam. So the blessings, the promises of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus is why, is how we can rejoice in the Lord always. Back to verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. Okay, You could think about it like this, put it in the vernacular, like things that have just been ruined forever. (laughs) This has just been broken forever. They shall repair up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Okay, listen. This can be personal, like individual, even like family, in in a family sense. Are any of you like ones that broke the cycle because of Jesus? Do you know what I'm saying? Like the cycle in your family of just brokenness, addiction, whatever it was. I mean, how many times do we hear those stories in the church? So there was divorce, 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 broken home, broken home, broken home, and then it's nothing I can take credit for, but by Jesus' grace and intervention, it's different now. That's repairing the brokenness. That's building up what was torn down. And in some families, that dysfunction goes way back, like just seems like forever. And then Jesus comes in, and it's different. Anger, patterns of anger, patterns of abuse, (coughs) patterns of addiction. It can stop, if you're wondering, 
if you're struggling, it can stop because of what Jesus can do, who he is and what he can do. And some of you are testimony that he's done it in my life, he's done it in my family. So if, if you're in a place where that has happened, you need to share that so people can say, oh man, I see how he's done it in their life, he can do it in mine. If you're struggling and you're in that spot, you need to know the Jesus of verses 1 to 3. And he can bring that about. He can strengthen you to build up the ancient ruins, the stuff that's been ruined forever, to raise up the former devastations and repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So it can be individual slash in a family. It can also be communal. Okay, the gospel can come into places and just transform them. So I mentioned it in my prayer. Derek Parks, the guy that's planting a church in, um, in Wilmington in the city, in, in the toughest part of the city, he is longing for Murder Town USA to be known as Mercy Town USA. Anybody want to join him in that prayer? Like, I think we ought to say, yes, Jesus can do that. Jesus could turn North Korea around. He did it in Albania. It can happen. And you know what? Fearful must have control people. You know, like around here. I'm not going to characterize, caricature some of you folks. But anyway, must have control people. Control folks can become flexible, bold, gracious people. Not, not in your own strength, but by the grace of Jesus. Hypercritical, insecure, prideful people can become gracious, patient, humble, secure people. Complainy, negative, snippy people can become thankful, sweet, kind people. Not very relational, insular, leave me alone people can become open, proactively, relationally loving people. Anybody believe that? I hope so. Stingy comfort seekers can become generous givers who are willing to step out of their comfort zone and take some risks. Shame can turn to glory. Emptiness turn to superabundance, just like this passage says. Dishonor can turn to joy, everlasting joy, all through Jesus. Listen, the church, like, do you realize we're the only ones that know the true path of life, the true path to eternal joy? Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. This great God of Isaiah 61, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we have tasted. Our appetites have been whetted. We're hungry for the fullness, but we've already, we've already gotten this. We are the new people, the new community that are supposed to rebuild and repair and raise up by the grace of Jesus. The wreckage of many generations can be cleared away and in its place a beautiful house, a beautiful family like our family can be built and it can, we can just draw more and more people in. So we're just the beginning of all things new. We're tasting heaven coming down and we're to give the world a taste and invite them to the table. So do you see how Christianity, true Christianity, and I love how this was struck even as we were singing songs and some of the stuff Russell shared, that true Christianity is not a matter of cajoling and manipulating and pressuring from outside. It's not just behavior modification, external conformity to a set of rules, as if creating a bunch of Pharisees is our goal. 
No, it's change from the inside out. It's internal, new heart, new spirit within you. God's heart for us, giving us a new heart, new desires, new senses, so that we can taste and see that it's good, and then we're changed and energized to affect change. So, Ken, this is Jesus' job description, and we can be confident that he will get the job done. He's really good at it. And you know what else? It's what makes him really happy. Doing this makes Jesus really happy. Why is Jesus so happy? Look at these last two verses here before we're done. Verse 10 and 11. This is the Messiah speaking. I, look back at verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Verse 10, I, the Messiah, will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And please don't think of like the Chiquita banana lady headdress, like a cornucopia on your head. This is like a turban, okay? Jesus was not an American. He was from the Middle East. Okay, so turban. So as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, because as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown up to sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So, I hope you see Jesus is joyful. Do you have a happy Savior? Like if, if you have the God of the Bible, you have a happy Savior. It's, it's funny. It's in there more than you realize. I'm just going to like machine gun bullet point these. Nehemiah 8.10, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Matthew 25, a couple weeks ago, Tom Steller preached on this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over mine. Enter into the joy of your master. John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, Jesus praying. But now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what makes Jesus happy? Again, look at verses 10 and 11. What makes him happy? He will rejoice in the Lord because he's totally equipped to save and transform us. See, he's clothed with the garments of salvation. He's covered with the robe of righteousness. He's totally equipped. And because just as he's a master at making the earth bring forth fruit, he's a master of bringing forth the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So he's totally equipped and he's really good at making all things new. He's going to grow it up. The Lord God is going to grow it up through his work. So you and me, we've got some stuff that needs changing. I mean, I know I do. So you've got some mess and failures. You've got some struggles. You're frustrated with who you are. You're feeling weak. You're feeling inadequate. You're feeling like a failure. How often do you just beat yourself up? You wake up in the morning and get in the shower and it's just like this, you know, in your head. And you, but you're just like in a dark hole by 
Let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us, despising the shame. He's seated, not pacing. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you know what's on his to-do list for today? (laughs) This is great. On his to-do list today is to bring good news to the poor. He wants to meet our needs and enrich us with his grace and mercy. He wants to bind up the brokenhearted today. He wants to heal you. He wants to proclaim liberty to the captives, open the prison to those who are bound. He wants to free you. He wants to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He wants to forgive your debts. He wants to comfort all who mourn. He wants to encourage you. He's going to turn ashes and sadness into beauty and joy. He wants to revive you. He wants to turn faintness and I can't go on to energetic praise. He wants to renew us. And he wants to turn this pathetic little acorn, you and me, into an oak of righteousness, his planting, that he may be glorified as the miracle gardener. Okay, so the joy of the Lord, it's indomitable, brothers and sisters. The happiness of our God is going to conquer the world. It's going to overcome the sinfulness and failure and guilt and sadness and brokenness and pain and sorrow. Jesus' joy is stronger than your sin. So let's praise the happy hero heart of our God. We're going to, we're going to close doing just that, praising our great God. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Oh, great God of highest heaven, Please occupy our lowly hearts and where they're still proud, stupidly proud. Would you humble us so that you can give grace to the humble? Own them all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your happy, holy war. You have loved and purchased us. Make us yours forevermore. Help us now to live lives dependent on your grace. Keep our hearts, guard our souls from the evils that we face. You are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through us. In Jesus' name.